Let's turn to John chapter 2. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived. He was filled with the Spirit of God while he was still in his mother's womb. He was chosen to be the forerunner for the Son of God's first arrival. John was the son of a priest, but he was also related to Yeshua by birth. He was Yeshua's older cousin. He lived a devoted, austere life in the wilderness. He was the first prophet God sent to the Jewish people in 400 years. His ministry was powerful. He made a tremendous impact on the Jewish people. Yeshua had been identified by this forerunner as the Messiah and the Lord. The Spirit of God had come upon Yeshua. Yeshua had found his first disciples among John's disciples. Yeshua revealed to Nathanael that he had supernatural knowledge about people and that he was going to do even greater things. He would be Jacob's ladder, the bridge, the mediator between God and man, the bridge between heaven and earth. Leaving the Jordan River area, Yeshua returned north to Galilee. Northern Israel became the center of his ministry. Now, starting in John chapter 2, God the Father will use his son to do his first miracle. Over the many centuries of human history, God has only allowed a few human beings to do a miracle. God the Father enabled Yeshua, allowed Yeshua to do many miracles, more miracles than any other human being. This shows us how special Yeshua is and how he was sent by God to us. John chapter 2, verse 1, the wedding at Cana and Yeshua's first miracle, turning the water into wine. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana, Cana in Galilee. Yeshua's mother was there, and Yeshua and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Yeshua's mother told him, they have no more wine. Rabbi Glenn, why was the wine running out a serious problem? In ancient Middle Eastern culture, well, ancient Middle Eastern culture is very different from you know, modern Western culture. Hospitality was extremely important. I'm not exaggerating when I say that it was considered a sacred obligation to provide for guests. Uh, it was a shame culture also. Failure to provide adequate hospitality 
would earn a family a terrible and permanent reputation in the community, lifelong social disgrace. This running out of wine wasn't merely an inconvenience. It was legitimately a crisis for that family, that host family, and probably not through any fault of their own. Most Israelis struggled financially. Most were on the poor side. And weddings were community-wide events. It would take a lot of wine to provide. So this was not just an inconvenience. This was a legit crisis. Mary wanted her son to do something to help. He responded, dear woman, that's not our problem. Yeshua replied, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Seemingly simple words, a simple circumstance, but as we discuss this in preparation for this morning, it turns out that this could be a lot more complicated than it appears at first. And all three of us have a little bit of different understanding on exactly what's going on here. Rabbi Jerry, let's start with you. Your thoughts. I think we spent about an hour discussing these two verses earlier this week. So a couple of things going on here. So first of all, there's some criticism to be said for this translation of these verses. So we've been using the NLT, which is a wonderful translation. We're big fans of the NLT. But like any translation, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. NLT is great when you agree with it. You know, it puts some theology, some extra thought into things. And so when you agree with it, it's wonderful. It does the legwork for you when you're preaching. But when you disagree with it, like I do here, I think Rabbi Glenn as well, um, we have to unpack why there's some issues. So a couple things going on here. So first of all, that phrase, dear woman, is not actually present in the original Greek. It's woman. Um, and so it really reads woman. And what does that have to do with us? So that's an NASB, a, a much more literal translation, a little different for verse 4. Instead of dear woman, that's not our problem. And the NASB, a much more literal translation, it says woman, what does that have to do with us? So first of all, the dear is dropped out. And it's not a statement, but a question. And even that question is sort of phrased very interestingly. So if we take that translation, a much more literal one, we have to then ask, what is actually going on here? So first of all, that term woman kind of seems harsh in our modern day minds. You know, we don't usually refer to our moms or our dads as woman or man, right? If you said to you know, your father, man, please you know, come over here, you might get, you know, spanked or something if you're a kid, right? It seems disrespectful. But in the English, it's, it's better understood as something like ma'am, right? A term of respect. So it's not insulting that he's referring to his mother as woman. It's more like ma'am, a term of respect. So that's one of the first things kind of going on here. But even that is sort of weird because throughout chapter two, John, the narrator, right, of this whole story, refers to Yeshua's mother, right? It says Yeshua's mother was with him. And later on, we'll see it refer to Yeshua's mother again. But he uses this term woman, which does create distance between him and his mom. 
And even that phrase there of my time has not, you know, what does this have to do with us? Excuse me. Woman, what does it have to do with us? Again, is sort of creating dis- distance, right? His mom's asking him to do something. He's like, woman, what does this have to do with us? He's, he's putting barriers in place here. So that's the first thing you want to clue in on is there's intentional distance going on here. The second issue is it says here in this translation, my time has not yet come. But literally in the Greek, it says my hour has not yet come. And that term hour has a really special meaning in John's gospel. Now, it is used, as we talked about in chapter one, to refer to the hour of a day. But over and over again, there's like 16 times in John's gospel where the use of this term hour by Yeshua either refers to his coming sacrifice on the cross. And there's a couple mentions towards the end of the gospel where he refers to the disciples' hour as coming soon, referring to their eventual martyrdom for Messiah. So this, at least to me, seems to be a clear mention here in the beginning of this gospel of Messiah's death, burial, perhaps even resurrection, but definitely his his upcoming death. So again, though, that seems kind of weird. Why here at a wedding about wine is this going on? Well, I think, and this is my opinion, and although I You know, there's other scholars who would agree with me on this. I think that what's going on here is that Yeshua is answering Mary, his mother's question, in a much more deeper spiritual way. And we see this again throughout uh, John's gospel, where people come up to Jesus with problems and situations, and he addresses not just what's going on in the physical realm, like their issue, but has this supernatural insight into what's going on in their lives and points things deeper to himself. Later on in this same chapter, we're going to see a physical temple being referred to and discussed, but he's really talking about his body, right? So there's a deeper spiritual reality. And so I think what's going on here is that this is to, first of all, get us curious. It's intentionally written this way to make you go, well, what's the hour that's to come? What's going on here? Which is a thread you can follow throughout the gospel. But also I think what's going on here is he is addressing his upcoming death in a very veiled way that will be better understood later, just like the reference to his body as the temple. And so this wedding feast, this idea of wine uh, being connected to him and a wedding feast of the Messiah is going on here. There's all this imagery coming from the Old Testament, which Mary understands that her son is the Messiah. But as we'll see throughout this gospel, as well as the others, What that really means, the implications of what she's asking here, of him to perform a miracle to begin his earthly ministry, she doesn't realize the ramifications of what's about to come when he starts this. I don't think, though, and this is, again, my opinion here, is I don't think he's actually disagreeing with her and refusing to do this. He's intentionally phrasing things this way for this deeper meaning, as we'll see, he does perform a miracle in this situation. I like that. Nope, sorry. Don't do that again. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Rabbi Glenn. She's a Jewish mother. Her son has told her, you know, this is not our business. And she completely ignores that. <laughs> and tells the servants, do whatever my son tells you. 
But it's like, my son, the Messiah. Can't wait for him to press his claim and prove to everybody. Every Jewish mother hoped that she might have that privilege of being the one to bear the promised Messiah into the world. She was the one. But again, she's pressing things. She wants him to start making himself known. And as Rabbi Jerry said, she doesn't understand the implications. She doesn't understand all that that's going to entail. And we'll talk more about that. But uh, he is not going to be pressed. He is not going to be hurried. He will not be rushed. He has an awareness of the time frame, and he will not be pressed, not by his mother, not by anyone else. I'm not at all sure that Mary is asking him to do a miracle. He had not done a miracle. He's probably around 30 years old. He has not done a miracle. Uh, but it seems like Joseph is no longer in the picture. Joseph is probably dead by this point. Yeshua is the oldest son. He's like the head of the family. They've been invited to this wedding. Uh, Mary wants uh, her son who has disciples uh, to, to help. Maybe they had some money. Maybe they could go buy some wine. I'm not sure that she was asking Yeshua to do a miracle. Maybe she was. That could be. Uh, Yeshua's initial response is negative. That's not our problem. And then it seems to me that he changed his mind. Now, I am somewhat uncomfortable with the Son of God changing his mind. But he's also a man, and maybe um, God the Father spoke to him, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and said, now is the time. And so um, he does do a miracle uh, to get this family out of this very embarrassing situation. That's why we spent an hour talking about this. <laughs> Can God change his mind? Um, if God says something, is he always committed to that exact outcome? No. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, Nineveh wasn't destroyed. Uh, was the prophet Jonah a false prophet? Was he a liar speaking a lie in God's name? No, because along with that uh, warning, 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, is the unspoken implication, but if you repent, I will not follow through on this threat. Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, get your affairs in order. You're going to die really soon. Uh, but Hezekiah humbles himself and prays, and the Lord says, okay, I've changed my mind. He doesn't say I've changed my mind, but I'm going to give you 15 extra years. So could this be a situation like that? I'm open to that possibility. If I could add one thing, you know, we talk about in theological circles, we talk about the doctrine of immutability, that God does not change. 
But that doesn't have to do with changing a decision based on the disposition of someone. When we say that God is immutable, we mean that his nature and character do not change. That doesn't mean he can't change his mind concerning Hezekiah, concerning the Ninevites. Um, it just simply means the doctrine of immutability has to do with his nature, his character. So he can change his mind and still and always be gracious, holy, merciful, powerful. We raise the issue, when people pray, does that affect the mind of God? Does God change in response to an effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman? And the answer is, God does hear prayer, and he does change his plans for people who pray in faith, and he works things, you know, he redirects things, he works things out, so... Maybe that's what's going on here, yeah, too. It's not changing who he is, but he changes concerning the circumstances. Even wicked Ahab, the, arguably the worst and most wicked king in Israel, humbled himself at one point. And God says to the prophet, do you see how he humbled himself? I'm going to do things later on rather than in his time. So to offer a counterpoint, because I disagree with the rabbis on this, I, I feel like, so I, I feel there's two things going on here. First of all, I don't believe that this passage even has Yeshua changing his mind. I think he intended to perform a work here, but there's something deeper going on that they're really going to only understand in hindsight. Again, like his statement later on in this chapter about um, the temple and his body. But secondly, this whole thing about God changing his mind, right? We change our mind as human beings when we're presented with new information or circumstances change, right? The, the issue with this idea of God changing mind that I see is how does this account for the fact that God knows everything before it happens, right? God does not exist in time like we do. Now, I will allow, I mean, Yeshua in these moments is, you know, in time. He is a human being on earth. He has emptied himself or lowered himself, choosing to not exert all his divine power and glory in the form of a human being. But God, when it talks about God the Father or in these passages, I just don't see God as changing his mind. He knew what Jonah was going to do before he did it. He knew, and he says to them, specifically the Ninevites, right? he, says, he says, go to the Ninevites and tell them they will be destroyed to tell them to repent. And the whole thing is Jonah knows God well enough, right? That's the whole story is he knows if he goes to the Ninevites, they will repent, um, and be spared. And he doesn't want that because they're terrible people. They're like the Nazis of the ancient world. But this is like when, when God talks to Moses about destroying the Jewish people, you know, was he really going to do it in that moment and then changes his mind because of Moses? Or does he know these circumstances and it's for our effect that these things happen, whether it's for those who are sinful or those who are not? That's the way I look at it. Another thought just occurred to me. Yeshua's initial response is negative. It seems to me to be negative. Uh, that's not our problem. My time has not come. I'm not going to do anything. But Mary has faith. His mother told the servants, do whatever Absolutely. he tells you. This woman is a woman of faith. And she is believing that her son is going to do something that will remedy this situation. Could it be that her faith 
triggered a changed circumstance, and God responded, the son responded in response to her response of faith. I don't see Mary as even the main person in the story. I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this with how Catholicism really elevates Mary's position because of her place in this narrative. Mary isn't even referred to by name in the story. She's so, by the mother. So what? His it's mother the idea of the narrative and the subject. His mother it's, told the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's a response of faith. Rabbi Glenn. I agree it's a response of faith. Okay. Um, I'm going with Rabbi Jerry on this. Excellent and wise choice. Not so much later, Mary, along with his brothers, are going to accuse him of being out of his mind and having lost his mind. I don't think this is great faith on her part. I think she simply wants him to press his messianic identity, and she is, after all, a proud Jewish mother. Press his messianic Jewish identity by doing a miracle. His messianic identity by performing a miracle. And that's not great faith? No, I think it's uh, my son, the Messiah. Okay, so I see her as being having great faith at this point, and I see people of great faith sometimes doubting later, like John the Baptist. Are you really the, you know, the one? All right, let's stop. Stop. No. Stop. <laughs> we have to. We could spend another hour, you know, discussing this, and that would not be profitable. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Yeshua replied, "My time has not yet come." But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Yeshua told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Several things going on here. Let's start with uh, ceremonial washing, these water jars used for ceremonial washing. Rabbi Jerry, talk to us about cer- uh, ceremonial washing among the Jewish people. This is a much less controversial topic. Very basically, in the ancient world, particularly among Jewish people this time, um, as rabbinic tradition, Uh, as well, and just cultural, you would ritualistically wash your hands before meals, after meals, I believe as well, and just at various times during the day. Um, Again, you know, it's sanitary to wash your hands, but it was less about the sanitariness of it as it was this idea of outwardly modeling inward ritual purity. And so these were very, you know, common jugs. They were readily available. Again, we see they hold vast quantities of water, so very convenient for what Yeshua is about to do. Uh, the Jewish ceremonial washings are still observed by the more religious Jewish people today, um, and definitely um, it's you wash your hands in a very specific way before you, you know, eat. So it is still done. 
and they they would have needed a lot of water anyway because when you're going to a formal event like a wedding, a very special ceremony, you would also need water to wash all that Judean dirt and dust off your feet. You wanted to have clean feet to come into a wedding ceremony. Maybe wash the dishes and cups and things like that as well, which need to be washed in a There's certain There's a lot way, of water here. So... The Bible itself, the Word of God, God never told the Jewish people to wash our hands before eating or washing cups or plates or dishes in a certain way. This is man-made religion. It's not the Word of God. God never commanded that. It's Jewish ritual, ceremonial religion instituted by, you know, the, the Jewish leaders over the centuries. Man-made tradition. Notice that the master of ceremonies said to Yeshua that a host always serves the best wine first, and then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he serves the less expensive wine. He actually said it to the bridegroom. What did I say? Yeshua. No, no, he said it to the bridegroom. Uh, Thank you. This teaches us that this wine had to be real wine, not grape juice, Real wine with alcohol. It is the alcohol in the wine that makes it harder for us to taste any difference between good wine or mediocre wine, especially after you've had a lot to drink. Uh, Your sense of taste gets dulled. So this is Yeshua's first miracle, turning water into real wine. This teaches us that followers of the Messiah are allowed to drink real wine. Not get drunk, but they are definitely allowed to drink real wine. Rabbi Glenn, this was the best wine that had been served at this wedding. Could this be the best wine that has ever been made or drunk on planet Earth? What do you think? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Could you elaborate? I don't drink wine. I just never acquired a taste for wine. I take this by faith. Um, Well, it's a good thing that you don't drink wine. Between us, you are the one who has the knowledge. It's a good thing that you don't drink wine because that leaves more for the rest of us. So, yeah, I, I got to agree with Rabbi Glenn. This is probably the best wine that had ever been made, ever been drunk, because God makes everything he does, he does well. He does exceedingly beautifully. Yeah. So, yes, God does... He's a master of perfection, and so this had to be the most fabulous wine. I'm looking forward to that wine that we're going to drink at the wedding feast of Messiah when we're united to him. Yeshua did this miracle very quietly, very privately. Why do you think that is, Rabbi Glenn? I mean, today's televangelists, if that had happened, um, it would not have been quiet. Come on, come on. It would not have been private. What's going on here? All right. There are a couple of possible reasons, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. It could be uh, multiple reasons for Yeshua performing this miracle so quietly, under the radar, as it were. 
Uh, the first has to do with, as I said, timing. He isn't going to hastily gather a following. Uh, to do so would be to force a conflict with the religious leaders. If he does a big miracle and very ostentatiously, everybody's going to be impressed, but he, he's not yet, it's not yet the time for him to uh, build that movement, at least uh, um, not then and there. Uh, to do so, he understands, is going to force a conflict with the religious leaders prematurely. Now, he knows that conflict is necessary. He knows that conflict is inevitable. And he knows that it will end with his death. He's not afraid of dying. But you see, before that happens, there was so much more for him to accomplish. He had not yet selected his full complement of 12 disciples. That was still in the works. Um, he hadn't given them all the teaching and instruction yet. There's a lot to do. So much teaching yet to disseminate, other miracles to perform, to establish his messianic claim. That's one reason. But I think there's also another reason. And it has to do with his character. About 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, said this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then he said, He will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not snuff out or extinguish. This is a description of Messiah's humility. No ostentation, no grandiose displays of power to try to ooh and awe everyone. What he did here, he did quietly without any fanfare. Yeshua demonstrated his power, his authority over the, even over the elements, yet in a quiet gentle way for that family, and he preserved their dignity. And so to the, the bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks, which of course is metaphors for those who are downcast and poor, to those very people, Messiah showed great kindness. So this has to do in part with the timing of it. It is not yet that time. So he's doing it quietly, and also it speaks to his character. We see this repeatedly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Yeshua did many miracles quietly, privately, took people aside to do a miracle for them, didn't want a big public, you know, exposure. Very much in keeping with the humble nature of the Son of God. Yeshua's first miracle involved a wedding. Could have been a number of things, I would think. You know, his first miracle. But it was turning water into wine at a wedding. That has to be significant. What do you think, Rabbi Glenn? How appropriate that Messiah's first miracle should take place at a wedding. Think about this. There is a wedding at the beginning of the Bible. Right? Genesis chapter 2. God brings Eve to Adam. Uh, and there's a wedding at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. The, the 
wedding feast of the Lamb, right? Messiah and his bride. And there's nothing quite like a Jewish wedding. Um, and so I think it's just so appropriate that the very first public miracle takes place at a wedding, thinking back, thinking to the future. Maybe he even had that wedding in his mind. But uh, how amazing the marriage supper of the Lamb will be. Can you... I mean, can you even imagine the joy that we're going to experience and and the catering? <laughs> it will be literally out of this world. All right. So this is Yeshua's first miracle, turning water into wine, rescuing this family. Um, Rabbi Jerry, what does this first miracle of Yeshua at Cana teach us about Yeshua? Well, it teaches us a couple things. The biggest thing I think is it teaches us that everything Yeshua does is more amazing and wonderful than anything that has come before. You know, whether or not Mary understood that he was going to perform a miracle or maybe take a little gal to go down the road and get some wine, you know, whatever she imagined, this definitely exceeded, I guarantee, what her imagination held. You know, this exceeded the imagination of the guests at this wedding. You know, not only was this, was there wine enough to drink, but it was overflowing in a sense with wine. You know, again, there's this idea of the wedding feast of Messiah. Amos talks about this. Later on, we see this in Revelation, this idea of overflowing wine. I think that imagery is intentional here in its own way. But, you know, again, it's the most amazing wine that's ever been created. You know, God doesn't just provide, he provides abundantly in ways we can't even begin to expect, but always in a way that really deals with the situation at hand. And again, as Rabbi Glenn said, just to echo him, you know, a wedding feast on earth is great. I'm sure this was a great party, but it is better to feast with Yeshua than to feast with people. Rabbi Glenn, what does this miracle teach us about Yeshua? teaches us about his wisdom, how to do things, when to do things. He didn't just acquiesce. It teaches us about his power and authority. He turned water into aged wine. teaches us his kindness because in doing this, he preserved the dignity of that family. It teaches us about his humility because he did so quietly and without any drawing any attention to himself. And and this teaches us about his true humanity. He enjoyed the things of life. He kept a party going. So it, sh <laughs> it shows his true humanity. This teaches us that Yeshua is able to take man-made ceremonies and rituals, man-made religion, lifeless ceremonies, rituals, dead religion, and turn that lifeless religion into something real and alive and powerful and pleasing to God and really life-enhancing. I always think about that. It wasn't just any water in any jars. This was water in jars for you know Jewish ceremonial ritual washings. Dead religion is one of the enemy's Biggest killers, keeping people alienated from God in dead religion. They're doing the outward external things. Looks like they're in touch with God. Looks like they're 
religious, but they're not. Yeshua is able to turn that into something real and alive and full of joy and connected to himself. Wine is very special. It is a, you know, a symbol. It, it, it brings us happiness. Like I said before, there's a reason why it's called happy hour. Mankind is miserable, sad. Uh, most people are leading lives of quiet desperation. If you want real happiness, real joy in life, you need Yeshua. He is the source and able to give us real happiness, lasting happiness, real joy. Now in this world, even in spite of all the circumstances, going on into eternal joy. We're almost finished. John tells us, verse 11, this miraculous sign at Cana, Cana, and Galilee was the first time Yeshua revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This miracle gave the disciples a glimpse of Yeshua's glory. How wonderful, how special, how great he is, how glorious he is. And this miracle resulted in his disciples believing in him. Now, they already had some belief in him. Um, but John tells us his disciples believed in him. Rabbi Jerry, what does it mean that his disciples believed in him? And what's the lesson for us today? I think briefly, you know, both the disciples... And Mary and the servants saw Yeshua's glory, right? The glory was revealed in this miracle, this divine supernatural act of turning water into wine. But it has different effects. As Rabbi Glenn alluded to, Mary will eventually think that Yeshua is out of his mind later on, even though she experiences this. It doesn't say the servants were saved from this act. But the disciples see this and they believe. So what this means, I think what it means is that they began to really understand he truly was the Messiah. That faith that had begun to be planted in their hearts by following him is now growing and developing deeper. And that journey will continue throughout the rest of their lives, especially when they're with Messiah Yeshua here on earth. The lesson for us today is, once again, miracles don't necessarily change hearts, but they can develop what God has already planted there. They can help water hearing testimonies of people of how God has transformed their lives can encourage us in our walk. It doesn't necessarily save people. Uh, the lesson for us is we need to do more than just witness and acknowledge what's happening with God in front of us. We have to believe, which means it has to do more than just excite us or impress us or scare us. It has to change our lives. It has to transform us. The importance of growing in faith and knowledge. The disciples had some faith already in Yeshua, had some knowledge. This added to their faith. This added to their knowledge. And the lesson for us today is we start off, most of us, with having a little bit of faith, a mustard seed of faith and knowledge. 
Our job, like the disciples, is to grow in faith, grow in knowledge as we are exposed more and more to Yeshua and his teachings through the Word of God and through prayer and, you know, communing with our brothers and sisters. Not being static with what we know about Yeshua now, growing in faith, growing in knowledge. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn.